Hey, good morning. Good to be here with you. Uh, it's only fair that I start today's message off by talking about the Raiders. I know. I have been mean to Raiders fans for a while, uh, and I've been announcing for several weeks that I'm going to be encouraging, and I'm going to do that in a second. First, first, uh, the previous guy who was up here, his name is Fred, spiritual formation pastor, and uh, we hired him in that, in that role, even though we knew he was a Raiders fan. You can't have everything, but he is a Raiders fan. He always tells me uh, to be nicer to Raiders, and I was like, I don't know, you guys are, there's nothing to be nice about, you know, so it's kind of hard. And so you, you guys, you know, and, and we talk to the people on staff, their fans are just the worst, I know, and their team is just the worst. I, I, I will be encouraging, I promise, um, at some point. Um, you guys lost again, I'm so sorry. And today you're playing the Chiefs, so we're just going to pen in L right there. Um, we're going to do that. But I promised I would be encouraging, and I'm going to guarantee um, the next weekend, you will not lose. Next weekend, you're not going to lose at all. You're going to rise above the ranks. And if any of you know why I can guarantee that, it's because you have a bye week. You don't even have an opponent. <laughs> Guaranteed not going to be loose. So you're going to have a great week. Uh, next Sunday, you're just going to be off. You're not going to have to go home and watch a game where you ruthlessly are. No, I'm just kidding. My, my team is God's team, the 49ers. And we established dominance again. <laughs> and so it's great. Those who are moaning right now, you probably lost to my team, so I'm just saying. Okay. We will get to the message. I promise we'll get there. Okay. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about real quick, um, on the opposite side of the Raiders, something that is good is this calendar right here, the Advent calendar, and so uh, Advent magazine, and so I've been calling it the Adventure magazine. I don't know if I just got Adventure on my mind, but this Advent magazine is a great way for you and your family to get into the Christmas story, to get some great recipes, to find out what's going on in our community, to be connected to our church while you're at home, and so we highly recommend you pick up one of these uh, outside. I'll mention it at the end of today's gathering as well. Our team is put a lot of time and effort into this, and so we hope you really enjoy this. They're free. Go pick one up, and we hope you really enjoy it. So we are in the, the tail end of this series called Next before we go into our Christmas series, which I'll tell you a little bit about uh, at the end of today's message. And we've been in this series called Next. And part of the reason we've been doing this is we've been talking about the future. And this has kind of been the tagline or the thing we've been saying every week, and the underlying assumption behind this series is this, is that you can build your faith when you know the future. You can build your faith when you know the future. And so part of the reason we had that bumper video, which is the video you saw before I came out here, is that what, what would you do differently if you could look back in your life? And this is a very great, lots of leadership books, lots of theological books, and lots of just people have used this as an example of how to make decisions in your life, and hopefully better ones. Many people have made this uh, famous. Uh, Stephen Covey has done this, where he had you picture uh, your own funeral, which is a little bit morbid, but he's basically like saying, hey, if you were somewhere were to stand up and talk about you and look back at your life, what would you want them to say? Then act up uh, to, to, to that, to that image of yourself or that image that other people have of you. And so we want to take it a little bit differently is we want to know and, and look at where God is taking everything. And if that's the direction everything is ultimately going, we want to prepare, we want to jump on board, we want to make sure that when we get to the destination, we're prepared for it. You know, it's, it's beginning to be ski season now, and so there's a little bit of snow up on the mountains. I mean, imagine if you put all of your gear in your car and you got up there and you realize you forgot your skis, you forgot something else, I've definitely done that. You can't go, you can't do it. Or if you're a golfer and you, you lost your golf clubs or didn't bring them with you, or if you're just a 
hiker, you forgot, you only brought sandals. Imagine getting to your destination and being unprepared for the activity or the thing that you want to participate in. And that, that's just kind of an analogy that we've tried to do in this series, that we've tried to highlight, is imagine getting to the end of everything and being unprepared. And we don't want that for you. And that's not just a, hey, let's go and see where we're going and let's just, we'll be prepared when we get there, is that God has given us all sorts of ways to prepare us along the way so that when we get into eternity with him, we go, this is mostly what I expected, but it's definitely everything that I have wanted. And so we want to talk about that a little bit today. And we ask these two questions, what would happen to your faith in God if he showed you the future? Maybe a generic version. Maybe it's not just personal to you. What would happen to your faith if he said, hey, this is where the world is going. This is where all of creation is going. This is what eternity is going to look like for people uh, who believe in me. Here what eternity is going to look like for people who don't believe in me. What would happen to your faith? And then we personalized it a bit, and we talked about yours. What should happen to your faith in God if he showed you? your future. And this does happen a few times in the Bible. Oftentimes, God thinks in a macro way. He wants to tell the nation of Israel. He wants to tell the Gentiles. He wants to tell the world. He wants to tell everyone who is living and dead where everything is headed. But there are also a few times when he talks about prophets and people, and he says, hey, this is going to be your future. He goes to Abraham, and he says, look, you're going to be a father of many nations, and, and everyone is going to come from your seed. Everyone who is going to love me is going to come from your seed because the savior of the world will come from your lineage and all the people who will be with me in eternity will be blessed because of you. He talks with people like David and he says, look, your son is going to be great and mighty. He's going to build a temple for me. And he personalizes some of this stuff. When Jesus was around with some of his disciples, he gave them, some of them, a very personal missions and very personal statements. He told the apostle John, hey, you're probably going to outlive everybody else. He told Peter that he would be crucified upside down. He told Paul that he would suffer for his name. So there are a lot of personal ways that God has revealed people's future, and they lived up to it knowing what was ahead of them. And so we hope that for you. And today we're going to be in the book of Daniel. And Daniel um, is a book that's kind of an interesting one. We, we've looked at four Old Testament prophets, and we've looked into biblical prophecy. And the reason that this, this one is up here, which is kind of interesting, is that the book of Daniel is probably most known for a few different things. It's probably most known as Daniel, who is an interpreter of dreams. It's probably most known for him being in a lion's den, that he was in there, he's put in there, and he didn't get eaten by lions because God sent an angel to shut their mouths. He's probably really known, the book of Daniel, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going into a pit where they were supposed to burn to death because they refused to bow to a statue of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar and all of his people had to bow down to. It's probably most famous for those things, but we're not going to talk about any of those. You, you might know those stories. You might have heard them, but we're going to talk about the end of everything today. How does it all end? And we're going to go to the words of Jesus. And the reason this point is up there is kind of an interesting one. When anyone dishonors God and seeks power and authority for themselves, they can descend into come becoming like animals. And you're like, wow, that is a right turn. How, how did you get there? Well, it's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. Part of the reason I got to this point is that there are a few instances in Scripture where human beings are talked about in a degrading way as being equitable with animals. 
One of them happens in the book of Daniel. In fact, a couple of them happen in the book of Daniel. So when Daniel is carried off to Babylon, God uses the kingdom of Babylon to conquer the nation of Judah, and they are allowed to be carried off. God has been talking about this for a while. He's like, hey, you have worshipped other idols. You have not um, honored me. And so I'm going to allow another kingdom to come in and take you off. You're going to be in exile. I'm going to allow other kings to set your time of days and your diets and everything else like that. And one of them is a guy named King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar um, is this guy right here who is yoked, by the way. He's on the keto diet is what he's saying. But what's interesting about this is that King Nebuchadnezzar is a great and mighty king, but he becomes prideful. He becomes very, very prideful and arrogant. And what happens is Daniel is an interpreter of dreams. Nebuchadnezzar has several dreams. And as Daniel is interpreting his dreams, um, one of them is not going to be so good for Daniel. We're going to talk about a couple of those dreams real quick. So uh, good for Nebuchadnezzar. So in one of those dreams, Nebuchadnezzar talks about uh, this vision he had. Daniel talks about uh, this dream and this vision, and he tells the king something interesting. He basically says to Nebuchadnezzar, hey, because of your arrogance and because of your pride, God will make you like one of the animals. You will eat the grass of the field, your hair will grow long, your nails will become like talons of a bird, and you will not resemble a human being. You will walk on all fours. And it's a powerful imagery is that when people get to a place where they dishonor God, they become lower than God has created them to be. And you can leave it on this one. They become lower than God has created them to be. King Nebuchadnezzar was at the top of the food chain. He was a human being. He was a king overall. His kingdom was splendid and incredible, but he became arrogant, and God humbled him. And in Daniel chapter 4, he, he, we think most of the time that he was this way for seven years. Imagine crawling on all fours for a while. It might be good for your back and some other things, but it, it was a challenge for him. And then one day he looks up to heaven. He humbles himself, and his humanity is restored. And the reason that's important in the book of Daniel is this next point is what, you know, God paid, made people to rule over wild animals, not to become them. <clears throat> and part of Daniel's point and imagery in this book, and it's other places in the New Testament and the Old Testament, that there is a clear dividing line between beasts and people, is that when God created everything in Genesis, you know, chapters 1, 2, and 3, he made human beings to rule over animals because we have logic and reason and we have souls and we, we're different. He created us. We're the crown jewel of his creation. We're not supposed to be like everything else in creation. And when King Nebuchadnezzar and to a certain extent any human being dishonors God to a place where they think or we think we're so arrogant that everything is a, a, about us, we can degrade to our baser instincts. We can look and long after things that animals go to without thinking. We can overeat and we can seek out food and pleasure because those are the things that are immediately needed for us. We can think about just our own um, survival and leave everyone else out. I mean, the imagery in Daniel is that when you lose that God is the king of the universe and you, he has created you for a purpose, for his purposes, you can be degraded to that of beasts. Now, it didn't just 
have an analogy for Nebuchadnezzar. Because Nebuchadnezzar had this, you can show the next picture up here. This is where Adam needs, it's called the dominion mandate. And so uh, we took this picture from Genesis 1. It's not actually in there, but it's an artist's rendition. And you can see that human beings are meant to rule over it. It doesn't matter how fierce the beasts are, is that God made human beings to dwell and to rule over them. And someday, again, when Eden is restored, when the earth and heaven meld together, is that we will still maintain dominion over animals. But this idea of beasts is also carried out in another of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. You know, number three, the point three here is this, is that the animals in Daniel and Revelation are symbolic of power and authority that resists God's rule and reign. The animals in Daniel and Revelation, they're symbolic of power and authority that resists God's rule and reign. So in Daniel, it describes four beasts, and you can put the, this up there. Um, I drew this myself. No, I didn't. I can't. I can draw stick figures. But there are four beasts in this, and all of them look unnatural to a certain degree. It describes a leopard with more than a few heads and wings. It describes a lion that obviously is not like any lion probably you and I have ever seen. A bear that on one side is kind of injured and has three ribs in its mouth. And then this dragon-like creature with ten horns. You look at this and you're like, okay, why is this there? And if you read the book of Revelation, there are lots of imagery in that book. Now, these beasts are representative of power and authority of people who have dishonored God. And each of them kind of has like a symbolic meaning, you know, ten, horde, 10 horns on one of these beasts probably represents um, 10 rulers. And the three ribs in the bear's mouth probably represents there are three generals or three kings um, that this bear or this, this figurehead will feed on or sacrifice. And there are a bunch of other metaphors in here. And the important thing is not necessarily what all of these mean. The important thing is, is there is a discrepancy by how King Nebuchadnezzar, who is a person who necessarily doesn't follow God, and we think maybe he does towards the end of his life, and how Daniel, who is a prophet, follows God. So Daniel is interpreting this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. And Daniel's interpretation and Nebuchadnezzar's interpretation of the same dream is wildly different. Can you go to the next image? This is how Nebuchadnezzar saw his dream. He saw it as a great statue. Now, there, there's an analogy here that I wish we could spend more time on, but suffice to say this, is that when a king and a powerful person and an arrogant person looks at their work and they see it, they see beauty and splendor and majesty. See, King Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. He saw an amazing statue with a golden head. He got silver and bronze. He saw a wonderful work of art. Daniel describes the same vision as beastly images. The two worldviews on this could not be different. Is that King Nebuchadnezzar saw his conquest and his kingdom as beauty and magnificent, and Daniel sees the same vision and interprets this as beastly, terrible, devouring human beings. Same vision, two very different views. And the analogy here is a, is a good one. Because when we venture away from God, we think and look back, and maybe in the present, things are better than they appear to be. And what God sees, at least through this prophet, is a degradation of people. It's a degradation of a human being. is a monstrous version of people. You see, kings like King Alexander the Great, now that they romanticized war and conquest. And what God saw 
was beasts devouring other human beings. It's not a good thing. So this is kind of like the imagery that you see. And then you get to Daniel 12, which is what we're going to get to in just a second. And God gives Daniel a view of what's going to happen at the end. So here's what happens in Daniel 12. It says, at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, God's talking to Daniel and kind of explaining what things are going on. The interesting thing is that Daniel is an interpreter of dreams. Every time someone had a dream, they called Daniel in, he came in, he would interpret it. But Daniel himself has a vision or a dream that he himself cannot interpret, and he has to ask God to interpret it for him. So he needs God in order for him to understand this. So there will be a time of great distress. This has not happened from the beginning of nations. Now, there is a lot of parallels between the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. You'll, if you know both of those books a little bit, a lot of them, there's a parallels in here. There'll be distress in Revelation as well. But at that time, your people and everyone whose name is found written in the book, Revelation will talk about the book of life will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth, dust is often an analogy for death. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says people will sleep and someday they will wake up, that there is not a finality to death. And then some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So even in the book of Daniel, there's this eternal perspective on where people will go and how they will behave. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness will like, be like stars forever and ever. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, two people, these two witnesses. We're not sure exactly who they are. One on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank of the river. One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the high waters of the river, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? That's the question that almost everyone wants to know. Okay, if this is where everything is going, how long until we get there? You ever had kids in the back of your car say, how long until we get there? It's the worst, right? I just want to open up Daniel and be like, all right, you know, let's talk about this. You don't, you, don't, you don't need to know. How long? It's not just kids, it's adults. We all want to know. How long until this is fulfilled? And then Daniel says, I heard, I heard their words, but I did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? Not just how long until it happens, but when that time gets here, what's going to happen? He replied, Go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. He doesn't even tell his prophet that he's given so many visions to you and the interpretation of prophetic dreams. He doesn't tell him everything. He tells him something, just enough to give him hope, just enough to help him understand that God is firmly in control, but not so much that Daniel would become distracted. And we're going to get there in a second. Many people will be purified and made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. As for you, Daniel, as for you, go your way until the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. So this should and probably did build Daniel's faith. God tells him the destination in some way, shape, or form, and he tells him the outcome in some way, shape, or form. He said, someday, someday there will be an end. Right now, your job, Daniel, is to rest, and I will rise you up again, and you will receive your inheritance. You know, this, this scripture is particularly fascinating because during the time of Jesus, which we'll get to in a second, there were lots of religious people who did not believe that it was possible to raise the dead. Death seemed like a finality. And yet here you have in Daniel... Like, this is written probably 600 years or so before the time of Jesus. 
Here you have in Daniel that God is guaranteeing that those people who know and love him, even though they may rest or they may fall asleep or they may die or they may pass away, whatever analogy or way you want to describe that, is that God is clearly saying that someday those who have followed him will rise up again and receive an inheritance. Jesus uses the same language. The apostles use the same language. Now, you get to the time of Jesus, and we're going to be in Matthew 24, and this idea of the end times doesn't go away. You know, sometimes we forget that during the time of Jesus, they did not have the New Testament. His disciples, all they had was the Old Testament. They had the Torah, they had the prophets, they had the law. They did not have Jesus' words like you and I do. And so they had lots of questions. So Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. He calls himself the Son of God. He does things that they can't quite wrap their head around for a normal human being. So at one point, and this is actually not a scripture that most people preach on and teach on or meditate on because it's difficult to understand. It's fascinating in one sense, but you don't hear a lot of messages in Matthew 24. A lot of us like to skip or at least go to the point where Jesus is crucified, which is an incredible scripture. But we can't pass on this stuff. So at one point, Jesus' disciples, they had left the temple, the place of worship. We talked last week about the importance of the temple and what the temple will be like someday. So Jesus leaves the temple, the the most holy place, and his disciples kind of ask him about some of the things he's been talking about, because he said the temple would be destroyed, and then his body would, uh, he's talking about his body, the temple would be destroyed and rebuilt in three days. He's talking about how he must rise again, and there's all this language in there that's challenging their assumptions of what it's like in the afterlife, and what will ultimately happen. And so they have a similar situation, a similar conversation with Jesus that Daniel does with the angel of the Lord. Here's what happens. So Jesus left the temple and he was walking away and his disciples came up to him to call his attention to his buildings. Again, they're still stuck. They're stuck that the worship would be a particular building, a particular place. Do you see all these things? So Jesus now points to a building and says, ah, this is pretty good, you know, like in the bathroom doesn't leave much to be desired. They could have improved those. But look, here are all the buildings. And do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down, all of it. <clears throat> and then Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately. So they go away from, like, we're embarrassed to ask this question, Jesus, but we've got some questions for you. And they said, tell us, when will this happen? When will the temple be destroyed? When will all of the buildings be gone? You're talking to us about some events that will happen in the future, because Jesus is reaching forward in the future and bringing back to the present an event that is going to happen that will trigger a bunch of other things. When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? You know, when I used to live in Southern California, there, there's a large conglomerate of churches that focus on the end times. And there's a, a special degree of um, particularity and expertise that when you deal with the end times, you have to keep in mind. And it's really good. And they, I mean, I wrote a book on heaven, and part of the reason I did that is because I was so fascinated by this internal perspectives and, and what we're all going towards. And it's okay to be enamored with what happens next but not so much that you forget what you're doing in the present. So when I lived in Southern California, I was part of more than a few churches, and one uh, organization of churches focused so heavily on the future that they always looked for signs 
in the present. And I remember sitting down with one guy who I was in Bible college at the time, and I could read ancient Greek. I couldn't read Hebrew yet. And he could read these languages way better than I could. And I was just like, man, are you a student somewhere? He's like, no, I just really enjoy it. And so as we started saying, it was a Starbucks. All my weird encounters happen at Starbucks. I don't know why. I should just go to Dutch Brothers and just be done with it. But I'm at this Starbucks, and I'm talking to this guy, and he starts to explain, and it gets weird real quick. He heard I was in Bible college, starts asking about end times. I was like, here we go. And he's just like, have you heard, you know, that they're thinking about putting credit cards in our hands? Have you heard about, you know, and he starts naming off world events and things, and he starts connecting them, and he opens the book to Revelation. He starts connecting those two and making a one-to-one comparison, which is always dangerous, always dangerous. And so he says, hey, do you think this could be this? And I said, no. I don't. And he said, why? I said, when were credit cards invented? He's like, I don't know. I was like, would you say it was in the 20th century, 19th century? Sure. It's like, what book, you know, what, what century was Revelation written in? He's probably like 80, 90. He's like, and, and I said, look, they have no idea what a credit card is back then. It would make no difference to them back then for us to talk about a credit card. It has to mean something to those people at the time. It has to mean something. And so I challenged his assumption, and I listened as well, and he taught me some things as well, but I challenged his assumption that we should be on the lookout forever for signs. And I said, people have been doing that a long time. In fact, there's this whole uh, view of theology called gematria and, and looking at codes in the Bible that you just try to decipher future events by what's already there. And I said, you're going to miss the point if you continue to do this. And part of the reason I have that thing in is based on what Jesus has said next. So he talks about the signs of the ends of the age. His disciples are curious about it. So are we a lot of the times. Hey, just tell me, when is it all going to end? You know, uh, I want to make sure that I'm doing something awesome on the day it all ends, not something bad. So Jesus answered and he says, watch out. So he takes their their question. You want to know when it happens? You want to know what happens? And Jesus says, watch out. Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming, I am the Messiah. Jesus will not be the only person and was not the only person to claim to be from God and to be the Messiah. We have people today that do that. You can go on YouTube and you can see people in various different countries and say they are the second coming of Jesus or they are the original Messiah or they are an additional Messiah or they're his messenger. There are people today that do this. And Jesus already told us, he pre-warned us Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You'll hear of wars, rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. You're not to worry about this stuff. Have you ever tried to tell someone not to worry? How does that go? Don't worry. Calm down. Do they ever do those things? They never do those things. If you're already upset and someone tells you to calm down, you're just more pissed off right? He was like, don't tell me to calm down. Someone said, amen. Thank you. You've been in a fight with your wife recently. It's cool. <laughs> I also understand that, my friend. But Jesus is one of, he tells people not to worry. And he says, you will hear of wars. Don't worry about that. Such things are going to happen. But the end is still to come. He continues, he says, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are the beginning of birth pains. Then, and then he tells them something they probably don't want to hear. Then you, and he's talking to his disciples, the people he has chosen. He says, then you will be handed over and you will be persecuted. 
and you will be put to death. And some of them are like, uh, I didn't see that in the brochure. You could have told us that on the front end. When I was in my tax collector booth and you told me to follow you, you didn't tell me the fine print, right? He says, some of you will die for my name and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Your allegiance to me will cause your friends and family members and people around the world to hate your guts. And at that time, many will turn away from the faith. People who said that they were on the side of Jesus, people who went to church, people who gave, people who were in small groups, people who prayed, people who aligned themselves, at least in word and in deed, with Jesus. And they'll turn away because life will be so hard and they will not be able to deal with the persecution that happens. And they will betray and hate each other. And then more false prophets will appear and they will deceive many people. I mean, Jesus was very clear that there are people who will be able to do miracles other than himself. There will be people who are not part of the family of God who will do something to deceive other people. Because of the increase in wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. What a, man, what an amazing but challenging line. He says, people's love will be frosty and like ice. But the one who stands firm, then he kind of makes a switch into hope. But the one who stands firm until the end will be saved. And this is the gospel of the kingdom, which will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And then Jesus kind of gives this prophecy that was also talked about in Daniel. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, so Daniel is acknowledged by Jesus. Jesus puts his stamp of approval. He says, yep, what Daniel said is going to come to fruition. If you need to read up on that, go back and read what he said. Some people think this was Antiochus IV. I think it's in 586 BC. They came into the temple, destroyed it, and put like idolatry and terrible things in the temple. Some people think that was a representation. Let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judah flee to the mountains. For there will be great distress. Do you see why no one teaches on this? You're like, ah, this is so bad. Then there will be great distress, unequals from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. He's like, there's going to be so much terribles that you're, you're going to want to run from it. And at that time, if anyone says to you, look, and then he comes back to this idea of looking for signs and looking for things that are going to come. If anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, there he is, don't believe it. There are false messiahs and prophets that will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive. And if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you ahead of time. So if anybody tells you there he is, don't go out. Do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then will appear the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet. And they will gather his elect from the four winds into the ends of the earth. You can skip to my next step because I'm going a little long today. You know what's interesting about all this? You can keep going is that Jesus is trying to tell them what will happen. And two things are very, very clear from Daniel and from Jesus. How long and when? Both of them ask this question. How long and when? How long will this happen and when will this happen? And the first thing we have to understand is that God is the ruler overall. That's when it will happen and how long. And at what outcome is that God will rule over all? You can put that one up there as well. Thank you. These are the only two answers that we need. 
We don't need to look for signs. We don't need to find out if this war, if this general, if this person is a sign that we're looking for. These are the two things that we have to understand. That at some point, God will rule over all. And how long and when is everything that's going to happen as it should be until God rules over all. So what do you do with all this information? We read a lot of scripture, a lot of it's pointing forward. I came up with three things, three next steps, I think, based on what we've just read and heard. And the first one is this, is instead of looking for signs for the end of times, prepare yourself by being ready and faithful in the present times. It's almost counterintuitive. In looking for the future, you will miss the present. And not being present, you will miss the future. It's almost counterintuitive. The best thing that Jesus said is that don't concentrate so much on where you're going and how you will get there. Concentrate on faithfulness in God, in the present, in every moment. This means your ministry to your family, to your neighbors, to your friends, that all comes first. God will go to take care of the rest. Number two, dedicate yourself to reading scripture daily so you can become a hard target for deception. I mean, Jesus mentions false prophet and deception many, many times. And the only way to understand if you have fallen prey to it or not is to read scripture and to look at the signs in scripture, not in the world. And then thirdly, to kneel humbly and pray to God and stand firmly in the world. You need both of these. King Nebuchadnezzar made the mistake of standing in arrogance, and we must not do the same. And part of the reason we do that is because in humility, Christ knelt before the Father and said, I will sacrifice myself. You know, in just a second, we're going we're to have communion. We're going to play a couple songs for you. And what I want you to do is I want you to almost forget 95% of everything I just told you. I know it's a weird thing to say. It's like, why did you spend all that time? 95%. That 5% is for you to be present today, right here, right now, as you take communion. Because if you keep your eyes focused on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith, in this moment, God will take care of the rest. You know, knowing the future is helpful to some degree, but you have absolutely zero control over that. The only thing you can is your faithfulness to God in the moment right now. So in a second, I'm going to pray for us, and the band's going to play a couple songs, and I ask you to examine your life, not your future. Put your future down for a minute and just examine how you treat your family, your friends, yourself, just today. Because Jesus took the bread and he concentrated all of history on one moment and says, this is my blood that is spilled for you. And he passed the bread around. He says, this is my body broken for you. And in an upper room with all of his disciples, he focused them on himself. And we want to invite you to do the same thing. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, my recommendation is either to respond in this message with faith or to wait. For the rest of you, I'm going to pray. And when you're ready, please take communion. Father, we're thankful for all you have done for us. Thank you so much for your son, Christ. Although he warns and tells us of what is to come, he tells us in the present times to be faithful to him in everything that we do. And we ask that you help us do that in the present. Lord, thank you for your sacrifice, your love. Help us concentrate on the present so you can take care of our future. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.